Luke chapter 15. Last week, we examined this chapter. We have been. And if you're not in a small group, this is the last chance, the last Sunday to get connected to one. There's some amazing things going on in our small groups. The book that we're studying, out, the prodigal God, is out there. You can get it and read it. You can show up. There are dozens of small groups that will meet tonight and all week long. This has been a transformational moment at North Place Church. People are coming to Christ. This is the topic we're studying. Last Sunday's sermon, we looked at the people that gathered around Jesus. We looked at, at the ones that, that had come to be with Him that, that He told this story to. Uh, he said to them, you have my notes. Yeah, yeah, no. I knew there was a guilty party here. Any, any cards you send, do not send any to Bear in Jill for Pastor Appreciation. I'm just kidding. He was doing me a favor. He found them somewhere. They must have found, they fell out of my notebook. We spent our entire time last week talking about the people that were around Jesus. If you look in the first two verses of of Luke 15, it's tax collectors and sinners on one side, and Jesus is eating with them, He's dining with them, He's spending time with them, and the religious crowd cannot imagine why somebody of Jesus' stature and His caliber would spend time and eat with people like this. Sinners. Tax collectors. And in order to answer their rebuke, or to answer their criticism, he tells this story. Two of the stories we examined last week, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And in that story we discovered the two things that were lost. The sheep was intellectually challenged to the point they can't find their way home on their own. Somebody's got to go get them. The coin is even less possible that the coin finds its way home on its own. Somebody has to go rescue them. And in that conversation about the lostness of those things, we learn a lot about sin. We learn a lot about the heart of God. And in both of those occasions, when what was lost was returned, there was celebration. And the Scripture says, in the same way, heaven rejoice over one lost soul who comes to faith in Christ. Yet the most popular of all of these parables is the last one. It's the parable of the prodigal son, we always call it. We've chosen not to call it that because the prodigal is more reference to God. Prodigal means extravagantly reckless. It means spendthrift. And when you read these three parables side by side in the context they were told, you'll understand the word recklessly extravagant or spendthrift is a reference to how God's grace is bestowed in these stories more than how the son who left home was. I want us to focus, and I'm not going to read the entire parable this morning because of time, but I want us to focus on the son's request. He goes to his father, the younger son, goes to his father and he says, Father, give me the portion of goods that belong to me. Give me what is your property that is mine. I want my inheritance. Now you have to understand in that culture, the eldest son got double portion of what any of the other kids had. If you're an eldest child, maybe you can invoke some Middle Eastern practices on your family. I don't know. But in this culture, the eldest child got a double portion of what all the other children got. So when, when they were dividing up this state, there's two children, two sons here. The oldest son would have got two-thirds. The younger son would have gotten one-third. And he came to his father for whatever reason and he said, Father, give me what belongs to me. I want to leave your house. And the father divided his portion among them. You read that in verse number 11 of Luke chapter 15. The scripture says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, 
Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth with wild living. I want to look at the request the young son made. What is the meaning of that request? I want to look at the father's response to the young man's request. And before we leave, I want you to understand why those things matter to you today. Why they matter to me, why they matter to you. When the younger son requested this, you have to understand, there were people standing around Jesus when he told this story. And they would have been stunned that a young man would have made such a request of his father in that day. You have to understand, in that day there was a patriarchal system, it was a system of high respect. And for this young son to ask for his part of the estate while his father was still alive was the equivalent of wishing his father dead. Things in the estate were not dispersed until after the death of the father. And for this son to go to his father and wish for his estate was to wish for his father's death. It was seen by those that listened to this story as a disgrace on the family name. It was seen as an extraordinary disrespect towards the father. It was a blow to the economic standing of the family since the father would have to sell part of his estate in order to pay off the younger son's request. It literally ripped the family apart. It was a relational and economic act of violence against his father and against his family name. So why would this young man make such a violent request? Augustine, the theologian of days past, gives a theory to why we as people do what we do, especially why we sin. Listen to what he says. A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired the man's wife or the man's property or else he would steal to support himself. Or else he was afraid of losing something to him. Or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenge. Augustine goes on to say that even a murderer murders because he loved something. He loved romance, or he loved wealth, or he loved his reputation. He loved something else much more than God. And that is why he murdered. Our hearts have become distorted, according to Augustine, by disordered loves. We love or we rest our hearts in or we look to things to give us joy and meaning in life that only God can give. And when we look to those things and get our life out of alignment, things like murder and all other sins in our life happen simply because something has captured our heart, something has captured our mind, something has captured our love and passion more than God Himself. And that disordered love is the cause of every sin in this world. And maybe the young man ask his father for all of his estate because he wanted his portion because he had fallen in love with the father's stuff more than he was in love with the father. We have a hard time understanding why God would have ever have asked Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son. It's a story in the book of Genesis 22. Why would God, here Abraham, if you know the story, you find it amazingly ironic that Abraham has waited nearly 100 years for a child. And God finally answers that prayer and gives him Isaac. And shortly after Isaac is born, he's a young man, God asks Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar. 
I've read this story and I've tried to rationalize this passage of Scripture with the God I read about in the rest of the Bible. A God who is a giver and not a taker. A God who blesses. A God of grace. Why would the God who gave Isaac to Abraham in turn ask for him back? There are a lot of people that have thought about this passage of Scripture. And in line with what we're talking about, it is quite possible that Abraham had fallen in love more with the creation of God, Isaac, than he was in love with the Creator. Perhaps God, who had at one time been in the rightful place on the throne of Abraham's heart, had been removed from that place in Abraham's life, and Abraham had put Isaac on the throne of his heart, and he had fallen more in love with the blessing, the promise, than he was the giver. He had fallen more in love with the creation than he was the Creator. Abraham was not in love with God any longer. He was in love with what God had given to Isaac and God was saying to Abraham Abraham, there has to be a coup in your heart. There has to be a revolt. There has to be a revolution in your life so that I take the rightful place on the throne of my heart. We sang it a moment ago He is jealous for me We serve a jealous God. And you say, well pastor, that makes God sound like he is narcissistic that he's jealous like he has weaknesses like we do. No, the reason God is jealous for us is because He created us. He knows there's a position in our heart that only is fulfilled when He is there. When we remove Him from that place in our heart and we try to fill it with other things, we begin to get our life out of alignment and bad things happen to people when God is no longer on the throne of their heart and their lives are ruled by disordered loves and misplaced passion. It wrecks homes. It wrecks families. It wrecks the societies. The reason God is jealous for us because He knows what happens to humanity when she is run by disordered loves. When God asked for Isaac, He didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart back. What has taken the place of God on the throne of your heart this morning? What disordered love Are you seeking to give meaning in life that only God can give? You see, the younger son may have lived with his father. He may have even obeyed his father, but he didn't love his father. Listen closely. The thing he loved ultimately were the father's things, not the father. His heart was set on the wealth, on the comfort, on the freedom, on the status that wealth would bring. His father was simply a means to an end of what he really wanted. His patience had come to an end. He knew that the request to get his part of the inheritance would be a knife in his father's heart. But he obviously didn't care. He wished his father dead to get his inheritance. On one side, you have a son. This has been the chair that represents the son who left home, squandered the father's estate on an immoral lifestyle. The other side of the table is... uh, religious son who never did anything wrong. This is the self-righteous older brother who never did one thing wrong in his life. They seem very different, and yet they are very much the same. One was trying to find fulfillment in life through self-gratification, taking the father's wealth. He didn't love the father. He loved the things of the father, and it became apparent by his request. On the other side of the table, you have a very religious son who even told his father, I've never done anything wrong. I followed all your commands. But he did not follow the father's commands because he loved the father. 
We will study this in detail next week. But what is the next thing in the parable that the elder son says? I've done everything you ever wanted me to do. But you've never thrown me a party like you did my brother who left and came back. The eldest son didn't love the father for who the father was. He loved the father for what the father would do for him. The question that we're asking ourselves today is, what is your motivation for serving God? Have you fallen in love with God truly through relationship? Or are you only serving Him to escape the unknown of eternity? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Or have you simply stumbled across a genie to get you out of a jam? Here's the great irony. The two sons look different on the surface. One runs and lives a dissolute life. One stays at home and obeys the father to the T. At the end, however, the older son is furious with the father and humiliates him because he refuses to go in at the end of the story. He refuses to sit at the same table with the lover of prostitutes. Here I've done everything right and you throw a party. I'm the winner, he's the loser, and the loser gets the party. He's mad. So the family's integrity and the father's heart is assaulted. One, because he wanted his part and left. The other, because he refused to sit at the same table with the lover of prostitutes. And both times, the father's heart is assaulted. This time, it's by the elder brother. Why? The elder brother objects to the expense of what the father is doing. He shows that he's obeyed the father to get his things, not because he loves the father. Both the older brother and the younger son love the father's things, but not the father. And I ask us that question this morning. Are you in love with God or are you in love with his things? Are you in love with God or are you serving him because you don't know what's going to happen after this life? Is God the end for you? Or is He just a means to an end? Is He just another insurance policy that you've got everything covered before you die? Have you really realized that Jesus is a real entity, a real person, a real being who can be known and and loved and walked with and talked with? Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is God just simply a means to another end for you? Do you love God or do you love His stuff? There's a crazy request. But the response is more shocking than the request. Everybody that heard Jesus tell that story that day would have been astounded that the man would make the request. I mean, the young man would ask his father and wish him dead like that. But everybody that heard the story knew what was going to happen next. The father was going to sweep in with anger and blows. He was going to beat the son into understanding and alignment and the son would stay home. I mean, in that culture, the father would drive the son away from the house or he would correct him with blows or he may even have him stoned to death. That was the exception or the expectation of those around Jesus. They never expected the father to do what Jesus said he did. Instead, the verse of Scripture says, he divided his property between them. Without an argument, the father gave him what he asked for. You have to put yourself in this context of history. The family's entire system of wealth was tied up in land and property. The family, their land was their identity. And when the son asked for that part, he literally asked for the father to tear his life apart. Because he had to sell part of his land in order to pay off the son's request. And he literally tore the life out of the father. The older son and anyone else in the community would have thought the father was foolish to give the younger son his request. 
But looking back, we know better. If the father had become embittered or beaten the young man or attacked him in some way or been hard-hearted towards him, the father would have become so hard he would have never welcomed him back and the son would have never expected to be able to come back home. But here's what the father did. He took the shame. He took the agony. He took the pain. The sin the son was committing, he went off and had a blast. But the father took the shame upon himself. Instead of taking revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on the son, the father kept the door open for relationship. The father was willing to suffer for the sin of the child so that someday the child could come back home. I hope you're understanding the depth of the love of God in this story as it revealed here. I I hope you see the connection that Jesus wants you to see between the Father in this parable and the Father that you have in heaven. You say, but pastor, I know maybe historically it it was a ridiculous request and maybe the people around thought it was even a more ridiculous response that the Father would give the Son what He wanted. But what difference does it make for us? First, whether you're the irreligious, free willing Son to my left, or you're the moral, religious, elder brother type to my right, we all have a problem with Augustine, what he calls disordered loves or idols of the heart. Let me bring this talk of disordered love into the 21st century and put flesh on that conversation. Suppose there is a wife who has a husband who spends hours with another woman talking about his problems and the problems of his wife. Suppose he goes traveling with this other woman and talks and thinks about her incessantly. So the wife confronts her husband on the issue and he says, what's the problem? I married you, didn't I? I pay the mortgage, don't I? I do all of my duties, don't I? If someone asks, I tell them you're my wife. Why are you so upset? And she would rightly, and we would all understand why, she would say to him, because you are legally bound to me, but someone else has captured your heart. Someone else has your imagination. Suppose there's a Christian who says he serves God with all his heart, but he devotes all of his time and energies to some other aim. His relation with God is more of a drudgery and an obligation than it is a passion. Suppose the Holy Spirit begins to knock at this man's door and convict him of his apathy. And the man says, Hey God, what's the problem? I prayed the sinner's prayer, didn't I? I go to church on occasion, don't I? I give him the offering sometimes, don't I? I'm not perfect, but better than I used to be, aren't I? Why won't you leave me alone? God won't leave him alone because he knows the term Christ follower in this person's life is only a label. He knows this man's heart follows after other things. He knows something else has captured this person's heart and imagination. Many of us in this room are like the elder brother. We may obey all the rules, but our real heart and our passion is something else. What Isaac has taken over your heart. I mean, it was a good thing. Isaac was God's answer to prayer. But for some reason, Abraham allowed Isaac to become more important in his life than God. What Isaac has kicked God off of the throne of your heart? 
Is it your career? Is it, is it money? Is it your children? Is it peer acceptance and, and your reputation? If there's anything that has a controlling position in your heart, if there is anything more important to your happiness than God, then it has become a God with a little g, a disorderly love, an idol of the heart. Here's the reality. There are a lot of disordered loves for the people that sit in this chair. For some of them, it's an idol of addiction. It's, it's a drug. It's a substance. For, for some of them, it's a, it's a relationship that has become promiscuous. For, for some of them, it's a passion other than what is pleasing to God. And most of the people that sit in this chair, the things that they deal with, it's not hard to argue with them that they're in this chair, that there's anything wrong because their, their, their lives are so uh, out of balance and, and they're moral, they're easy to see. I mean, you know this son is lost. Not an argument. The more dangerous idol of the heart is when they're found in the elder brother. Because those idols of the heart are hidden by religious service. They're hidden by Christianese. They're hidden because we go to church and we pay our tithes and we're good people. But the reality is even in the heart of good people, elder brothers who come to church every Sunday, there's the reality that we could fall in love with something in our life that is more important to us than God Himself and continue on with our religious service and all the while not follow, following Jesus is no longer a pleasure of ours. It is an obligation of ours. Has following Jesus become a duty to you? Or is there a sense of freshness? Is there a sense of joy? Is there a sense of purpose and passion in your walk with God? Do you have the younger brother syndrome or the elder brother syndrome? Are you seeking after self-gratification? Are you going through the drudgery of obedience and there is no pleasure in your relationship because of the disorderly love? The disordered love. Of your heart. What difference does it make to us? It makes a lot of difference if you can see what the Father did for the Son in the parable is what the Father has done for all of us. When God came into this world, He could have come into this world in wrath. I mean, every, ever since God created humanity, we've been blowing it. Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, and creation was so wicked again that God wiped it and flooded it and Noah and the ark, and that's how you get all of that story. And every time you turn around, it seems like humanity is blowing it. And when God came to establish His kingdom, it could, He could have come in wrath. I mean, He could have been what the people expected Him to be in the parable, but He did the same thing that the Father in the parable did. He responded in grace. He didn't come with the sword in His hand. He came with three nails in His hand we sang about. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear our judgment. He came to die so that we could live. He went to the cross in weakness voluntarily. His life was literally torn apart like the Father's estate. His property, His garment was literally cast it lights before Him. But He did that so we, like the younger son, could have a way back home if we chose to come. Forgiveness and reconciliation is available because our Heavenly Father is just like the father of that parable. Those listening that day cannot believe that the Father would do such a thing. And there are people in the religious community that see people come to Christ at the altars of this church and cannot believe that those people would follow God or that God would accept them or we would let them hang out here. And if people have that kind of religious idea, they don't get the gospel. 
they have missed the whole point. The reason He didn't come in wrath, He took wrath upon Him at the cross so He could bestow His love so that elder, younger brothers, that are the lover of prostitutes and bound in immorality and anything else that we would be afraid to mention and elder brothers who are lost in their shout of religious hypocrisy, they can all come back home and find a place at the table. In a spiritual sense, when we see the absolute beauty of what Jesus has done for us, captures our heart when I realize the depth he had to go to to get me it brings a new meaning to he's stolen my heart yes he has because until that moment there were disordered loves here and maybe we need to let him steal our hearts again maybe there are younger brothers who have who have become other idols in their life they're chasing after other things maybe there are elder brothers in this room who have allowed other things to take the place of God in their life in the middle of going to church in the middle of living a moral life God has been kicked off the throne of your heart and maybe we need to understand the meaning of that song again you've stolen my heart yes you have the disordered loves have been unseated from their throne and God has taken his rightful place He's recaptured the right spot of priority in my heart. When I look at the depths of where He went for me, it makes me want to lay down my Isaacs and run back to the Father because He's done everything possible to recapture, to steal your heart back from the idols in your life that are tugging for your allegiance. I want the worship team to come to the platform, and as they do, I want you to look at your screen. John Newton is famous for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote a less famous hymn that you may have never heard, but I have copied on the screen a few lines from that hymn. It says this, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love Him beyond measure and serve Him with our all. For some of us, our pleasure and our duty is still opposite. Serving God has no longer been our passion. My heart this morning beats for people like this. 19 years ago, next month, November the 18th, I was the younger brother. I grew up in church. I knew what it was all about, but I I chose the path of self-discovery. I wanted to do everything I was told I couldn't do to prove everybody wrong. And the more aggressively I went to prove everybody wrong, I beat, by default proved every one of them right. A teenage alcoholic stealing out the back of a grocery store bay door to meet my addictions, wallowing in the pig pen of this story. I 
was the lover of prostitutes, the promiscuous, the drunk, the addicted. The... And here, I've come to Christ. I've been saved 19 years. I've been sober, alcohol-free. Lived a pure life. The danger is I, I now sit in this chair. No, I, I, I don't, you know, sexual sin and alcohol and addiction and the obvious things that we label sin. It, you know what, I don't deal with those like I used to. I'm still vulnerable to any of them. Don't get me wrong, but they, they, they're not passions of mine like they used to be. I'm in a more dangerous place now. I'm in the ministry I can hide my disordered loves and Christian garments and theological degrees and wake up one day and realize I never really was in love with Jesus in the first place it became duty to me obligation to me that somewhere along the way God gave me something that was supposed to be good But like Abraham, I let Isaac take God's place instead of keeping God where he's supposed to be. God's not jealous for you because he's narcissistic and he's corrupted. God is jealous in his love for you because he knows the danger when his people let his blessings take the place of him on the throne of their heart. Maybe you're the elder brother and it's your career, it's your dream, it's your future. I'll have to be honest with you. I had a dream in my life for ministry, and I didn't think that could be evil, but my dream became evil because I wanted my dream more than I wanted God. And my dream had to die. And and nobody convicted me of that. Nobody rebuked me. If if I fell into sexual sin, somebody would say, Pastor. If I fell back into drinking, somebody would say, Pastor. And there would be a rehabilitation program, and they would correct me, but... Over here, I'm still worshiping, loving. I just had disordered love. And I wanted my dream more than I wanted Jesus. And my dream had to die. I don't know if I'll ever get it back. And it doesn't matter. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, If you seek after me and righteousness, my kingdom and my righteousness, all those other things I'll add to you later. This is a message to disordered love because it doesn't matter what end of the table you're in. Every one of us in this room have idols that are vying for our attention and for some of us. And I can tell you even as a pastor, there are times I have to go to the Mount Moriah of my heart like Abraham went to the Mount Moriah and I have to lay Isaac down and get my heart right with God. And for some of you, God wants your pleasure and your duty to no longer be opposite. He wants your relationship with Him to be right. It's dangerous when our lives are driven by misplaced passions and disordered loves. In just a minute, I'm going to walk down the front of this church like I have the last few Sundays. 
There's not been a time yet. This will be the sixth time I've walked from this pulpit down there and waited on somebody to come to Christ. I imagine before this is over, I'll be down there one day by myself, and this may be the day, I don't know. But I'm supposed to wait. I'm supposed to give an opportunity and wait. So whether you identify more with a lover of prostitutes, the younger son that left, not a whole lot of argument about where you stand spiritually. But you need grace today. The fact that this front of this church is an ocean of grace to come swim in. There's, there's a spot at the table for you. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how miserably you failed God. I don't care if you're 80 or 18. You have not, you may feel unworthy, but in God's eyes, you're not. my heart cries out as a pastor because I know we're all guilty I just don't know who God's speaking to this morning because you need to come bring Isaac to the altar so that God can find the rightful place on your heart again misdirected passions and a disordered love has robbed you of the joy of serving God is God an end or a means to an end for you you serve him because you love him or do you you need his stuff. I'm going to pray. When we stand to your feet, I, I, I believe there is power in the gospel and the Holy Spirit is drawing people in response to this word. Younger brothers, come to my left. Elder brothers, come to my right. And I'll be waiting on you down here because I know in my heart God said when He told me to start preaching like this He said you don't have to push you don't have to prime you let me do my work and I'm going to do that Father in the name of Jesus would you speak to younger brothers would you speak to elder brothers Every one of us, for one reason or another. At some point in our lives, and maybe it's now, have removed you from your rightful place and put a disordered love there. Would you make this altar like a Mount Moriah? The place of sacrifice. The place where Isaac is removed from the throne of our hearts. And you take your rightful place. Forgive younger brothers, God, that have wandered away, that are driven by sin like I was. Forgive elder brothers like I am so possible of becoming. Forgive us, Holy Spirit, and draw people to an altar of change this morning. Would you stand to your feet all over this place? And if God is calling you an altar, would you come? I'm not asking you to join my church. I'm asking you to respond to the Holy Spirit today. It's an altar of grace this morning.
Come on. Elder brothers, younger brothers, I don't care why you need to respond. It doesn't matter today because both of you have an invitation to the table this morning. Disordered loves. Disordered loves. All Jesus wants is to take His rightful place in the throne of your heart. That's it. That's it. His love is jealous for you. Come on, His arms are open wide today. No questions asked. Come to Jesus this morning. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of His wind.